Um, we're going to be in John chapter 8, but before we get to there, John chapter 8, verses 2, just tell you a little bit about the Big Bend retreat that we had for RUF last, uh, this, this week. It was so fun. Um, and uh, if you want to get the, the whole experience of it, you can just follow Russell's uh, Snapchat because he recorded the entire thing. The entire thing. And uh, there was a group of 13 of us, seven students from UTEP, uh, including the Baptism Brothers of Nicholas and Russell. And it was so fun. Hiking out in the wilderness, exploring canyons and ghost towns. And, uh, you know, every time we would go somewhere, Russell would adopt a new hiker with us. And this is a desolate place and there's nobody around. But, like, he would adopt these hikers with us and start telling them about Jesus and it was phenomenal. Um, it was a great time for Bible study around the fire, fellowship, and new friendships being formed. One of the things we talked about was uh, our baptismal identity and shame. Um, that our identity is that we are the beloved children of God. That we are delighted in by Him. That Jesus washed us by his blood. Uh, One of the students who was there, she said afterwards that uh, she was a PCA kid who was baptized when she was a little girl. And she says, whenever she went out the door, my dad would always say, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. And she said, I never really understood what that meant until this retreat. Remembering that our true identity is in Christ. That we are beloved by Him. That we are delighted in by God. Because we've been washed by Him. And this is what we need in the Christian life. To remember our true identity. This is what we need. And so our theme this morning is about the Gospel's power to change us. And we need this gospel. We need it because we know that the gospel is, in fact, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's what we're about as a church. We believe that God's grace is, His powerful grace is what brings about your transformation, my transformation, and our change, our growth as a church. And yet we recognize that there's tension, right? We, we look back at yesterday, we look back at this last week, we look back at the last year, and we reflect on it, and this nasty feeling bubbles up, and it's the feeling of shame. Shame. Shame is like that sewage that just kept floating up in my uh, bathroom all fall that Gary and I had to come over and help and fix over and over and over again. And the shame, the sewage just kept coming up over and over again, except for it's the nastiness that pervades you and me. It's the smell that we can't get rid of. Shame is that it's the humiliating loss of face that comes from being exposed. Our sin is exposed. It's being condemned by others. And it isn't that, in fact, the the self-condemning talk that we tell ourselves to. And to deal with it, we soothe ourselves in the very things that we're ashamed of. And we try to hide. Just like Adam and Eve, when they were covenant breakers, what did they do? They were ashamed and they tried to hide. But the problem is that when we hide, hiding is, in fact, the thing that keeps us from changing. 
the Avett Brothers had this album called Emotionalism, which we could say hashtag 2020. That was my experience of last year. They have a song in that album called Shame. And some of the lyrics in there talk about the dynamic between shame and the problem of not being able to change. And they say this, I know the things that I said to you, they were untender and untrue. I'd like to see those things undo. So if you could find it in your heart to give a man a second start, I promise things won't end the same. Shame. Boatloads of shame. Day after day. More of the same. Blame. Blame. Please lift it off. Please take it off. Please make it stop. See, there are probably things that you want to undo or things that you're committed to not seeing the same in 2021. And yet, shame. Boatloads of shame. And in John chapter 8, the passage that we find ourselves today, we're told of Jesus' encounter with a woman exposed with shame, boatloads of shame. And you and I could trade places with her and insert your or my sin and my shame. Because in this encounter with Jesus and this woman, we find the very central dynamic of the Christian life that empowers our change today. And it is nothing other than the very costly love of Jesus Christ himself. It's the costly love of Jesus that is the gospel power itself to bring our transformation. And so I'm going to read John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11, if you'll read with me. Early in the morning... Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? In this, they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would show us Jesus. You would illuminate our hearts and our minds. To see the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're an outline person, our outline is the trap, the tables turned, and the costly love of Jesus. So starting with the trap, 
We see here in verse 2 through 6, the text tells us it's early in the morning. Perhaps the vendors are setting up their, their stalls for the market nearby. The sun is just rising up. And Jesus is at the temple. And all the people are coming to listen to the teaching of Jesus. They're eager to encounter this Messiah. Because He's the one that has the words of eternal life. And so everyone's gathering, it says. All the people. And I wonder for you and me in our lives, when all is still and all is quiet in the early morning or late at night before you go to bed and all is quiet, are we eager to meet with this Jesus? Like these people. Because He's the one that has the words of authority, of grace, and of truth. And yet, the Pharisees here, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious men who are seen as holy in the eyes of the people and even in their own eyes, they're not interested in being with Jesus this morning. They're not interested in it. Because what happens early in the morning, these religious guys, they find a woman who is in the arms of a man that is not her husband. It says they found her in the act of adultery, meaning she's probably lying with this man. The adultery is undeniable is the point. Um, And so this woman is taken from this man's bed from wherever they are and she's brought out by the men who are probably her father's age and put in front of Jesus and in front of the crowd and in front of the very holy temple of God. It's like her sin is being exposed to the entire church. It's like we were coming to the Lord's Supper and somebody brought a woman caught in adultery right in front of the the Lord's Supper. Shame. Shame. Boatloads of shame that she feels. But the first question that I have, and probably you have in this, is where is the man who's caught in adultery? I mean, where's the guy? I mean, did he, like, escape out the side door? Uh, I mean, did they turn a blind eye? Was he an influential person? Was she a victim of a sexual bias? Because we know it takes two to tango, as they say. And this is an important point. Because if these Pharisees were truly interested in the holiness that the law demands, Deuteronomy 22 provided that both the man and the woman would be brought forward together. But you see, these Pharisees, they're just using this woman as a pawn to get to Jesus. And this is what it says in verse 4 and 5. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? In the, in the text, says this, they said, to test him. See, there's nothing here about this situation that is right or that is good. This is what we call a basic catch-22. It's a trap. See, the parameters of what they're doing, they are uh, defining it in such a way that mercy and justice are opposite principles. On the one hand, the man and the woman together, they ought to be stoned for adultery according to biblical law. But on the other hand, they're under the Roman civil authority, which, revi- which, resolved, um, which meant for capital punishment was only reserved for Rome. But even more deeply than that, uh, the question is, 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 is really this. Jesus, are you going to excuse what she did? Or do you condemn her? Do you excuse what she did? Or do you condemn this woman? 
And that's the trap. That's the core of the trap here. And Jesus sees through the hypocrisy of their questioning. It's evident in the way that they use this woman and the way that they use the law. You see, ironically, their ethics in this situation are no different than the Greco-Roman world around them. You see, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, adultery was forbidden for women. But for a married man, it was okay to sleep around with some other women and they would be fine. Whereas the seventh commandment of the Bible, you shall not commit adultery, is equal and forbidding and protecting spouses. But do you see what the Pharisees have done right here? The Pharisees just made it acceptable for the man who gets away, but for the woman, it is unacceptable. And so they're following exactly like the Romans and the Greco-Roman society around them. And they fell into their own trap. In their supposed zeal for the law of God, they were actually just like the pagan Romans around them, being neither just nor merciful. I think that there is a caution for us here. Is that we ourselves can easily be like these Pharisees. We oftentimes want to say the Pharisees, like we're not like them. But you and I are so much inclined to be like the Pharisees. Is there somebody that you have it out for? Is there a group that inflames your anger? Because we have to consider that you and I too can pretend to be zealous for God's word and zealous for God's law, but really just trying to trap people that we hate, just like the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. You see, Micah 6.8 is worth repeating over and over and over again. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? think a major lesson at this point is that if we are not humbly walking with our God, then we will be neither just nor merciful. And in fact, we will use the law of God. We will use His Word as hypocrites to bludgeon people. And the thing is, Jesus does what He always does, and He sees the hypocrisy And he does what he most brilliantly does. He turns the table around on the Pharisees. He turns the table around on them. So imagine the scene then in verse 6 through 9 when he's turning the table. And imagine what it was like again for the woman in this moment. The tension is building. The exposure of her guilt and the shame that is building up. The shame boatloads of shame and in this tense moment it's building up and everyone wants to know what is jesus going to say what is he going to say to them and about this woman and what does he do (laughs) he bends down and he starts doodling on the ground he doodles what does he what what does he i mean what does he write this is our question like one of our questions what's he writing on the ground Well, I can safely say, after much study and after 2,000 years of church history, that we have no idea. We have no idea. You know, there are some interesting ideas that are plausible to some absolutely outlandish ideas. But the point is, if we were supposed to know, then it would have been written for us. It would have been written for us if if we were supposed to know. But nonetheless, he's writing on the ground. And apparently, he's ignoring the Pharisees. And 
the Pharisees do what I always do when my children ignore me. They just get louder and repeat it again. Pick up your toys. Pick up your toys, right? And they just repeat themselves louder and louder. And again, they're asking, Jesus, do you condemn this woman or do you excuse her sin? Which is it? Condemnation or excusing? And this is where Jesus flips the tables upon them. In verse 7, he turns the tables and he says, Let him who is without sin be the first among you to throw a stone at her. Ah! Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he lets that sit for a moment. And he bends back down and he writes on the ground. Let him who is without sin be the first one to throw the stone. And what happens when they hear that? What happens when they hear that? Verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. You hear that? Beginning with the older ones, they left one by one. And here is an important point that I think bears repeating. It is that the more mature that you and I are, the more quickly you are to recognize your own indwelling sin. This is the experience of the saintly saints among us. That the further you grow in your spiritual maturity, the more aware you are of how deep your sin goes. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. The experience of sanctification in your and my life is that you and I quickly recognize our sin. So when someone points out your sin or my sin and our hypocrisy, are we defensive? Probably, I am. Or can we humbly admit it and say, it's true and you don't know the half of it. Humility. In fact, this is how Paul describes the experience of sanctification, what it feels like for him to grow, for us to grow in the Christian life. This is what he says, listen, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's a new apostle, what does he say? He says, for I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And then in Ephesians, when he's more mature and he's been in the ministry for a while, what does he say in Ephesians 3? Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace has been given to me to preach to the Gentiles. And then at the very end of his life, in the pastoral epistles, what does he say? He says this, The saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Do you hear the, pre- the, the progression in his life? I am the least of the apostles. I am then the least of the Christians, of the saints. To I, This is trustworthy and worthy of his full acceptance. Christ came to save sinners and I am the worst. To grow in our sanctification is to grow in that recognition. 
We say, I am a big sinner, but Jesus, you are an even greater Savior. Thank you, Lord. And this is what sanctification looks like in our life. And this is what it feels like. And this is not becoming weighed down with our shame. This isn't becoming weighed down with our shame. It's the opposite, in fact. It's a profound recognition that Jesus loves someone as bad as you and me. that we quickly recognize our sin. It's not shame, but mercy and grace. That my sins, they are many, but His mercy is more, as a song. My sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. And this is, in fact, exactly where Jesus brings this guilty, shamed woman to be changed by His costly love, by His costly mercy. And so changed by his costly mercy in verse 9, we see in the middle of verse 9 that everyone leaves. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And so we may think that the moment of tension is over, but at this moment, the tension is actually at its highest point. Because now it's Jesus who is the only person in all of human history who is without sin and this sinful woman and a pile of rocks. Jesus is the only one without sin who can rightfully take up that rock first. And so we ask ourselves, will the Holy One condemn her or will He excuse her sin? And you have to ask, and I have to ask myself the same question in our lives. Does God condemn you in shame? Or does He just say that what you've been doing isn't a big deal? And the answer, of course, is neither. No, that is not what happened. God does not condemn you in your shame. Jesus would not throw the stone at her because Jesus would be stoned for her. Jesus would go to the cross for the woman. He would be stoned for her adultery, so to speak. For her shame, he would be shamed as an adulterer. And I love the way the hymn puts it. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Do you hear that? This is the costly love of Jesus that in your place condemned He stood. He bore the brunt of your shame. He sealed your forgiveness with His blood. And so He neither condemns you nor says that your sin wasn't a big deal. He takes it to the very cross upon Himself. Shamed for my shame. And this is why the very next verse, this is why he can say in verses 10 and 11, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. You see, the order of that statement is everything. You change that order and you no longer have Christianity. You no longer have the gospel. If you think it's this, I have to stop sinning. I have to manage my shame and then I won't be condemned. 
What you have is not Christianity. It's not the gospel. You've missed it. The order of the statement is everything. Jesus says, I do not condemn you. I love you. Therefore, go and you can sin no more. But it's easy for us to still read this statement of Jesus here and read it backwards as if Jesus was saying like, man, listen, I don't condemn you, but you barely made it. Like, go and sin no more. Stop it. We, we, we want to do that. But I love Romans 8, how he puts it. Paul explains it. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Your forgiveness precedes freedom. My forgiveness by Jesus precedes and empowers my freedom to walk in love. That we are loved unconditionally in Jesus and so we can go live righteously for Him. So as a church, as a campus ministry, are we growing in this kind of gospel? Are we growing in it? Because the gospel culture says of us, we do not condemn you. Therefore, go and break free from your sin. That the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. Or it's the cancel culture and the shame culture that says, we do condemn you. Therefore, live in irrecoverable shame and be dead to us. In which contempt leads to the assassination of our hearts. And which are we going to be shaped by? Which are we going to be shaped by? we must remember that Jesus' costly love covers all of our shame and gives us power to change this year. And so in closing, where do you need to change this, this, this coming year? When you look back at your life in 2020, where do you need to go and sin no more? Were you despairing of hope this year? Was your temper quickly kindled so you yelled a lot? Did you slander some folk online Did you nurse resentment for the other side? Did you reckon with lust, porn, adultery? Were you exposed to your own prejudice, your own partiality or racism? Were you selfish and self-absorbed with your time and resources? Did you feel superior? Did you feel like a failure? And how do you feel when you think about those things? When we come to church and we take time to confess our sins, how do we feel? Do you want to hide? I want to hide. But like this woman, the best thing that can happen to us is for us to be exposed to Jesus. Because He says of us, come to him that you are not condemned I was condemned for you and so you can go in my power and sin no more let us pray Father let us pray, praise the Savior Jesus name
He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with His blood. He has washed us with His blood. Jesus, You have washed us with Your blood. Jesus, You have brought us near to God. So we praise You. Amen.